Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. In this week's Dharma Talk by meditation instructor Marcus Casey, we continue our series on the lives of the Karmapas. Today we focus on the fourth and fifth Karmapas as we learn the importance of sticking with the essentials. Due to technical difficulties, we are missing the first few moments of this Dharma Talk and join it already in progress. Enjoy the podcast. Enthusiasm. Uh, we've found something, something that uh, we hadn't found before, something that's uh, adding to our lives in a way that, um, that we really need and really appreciate. Uh, we've found something great, a jewel, we're excited, and we just can't get enough. Um, we're here for every teaching, we're doing our practices, just extremely motivated. Uh, we have that initial thirst, the zeal of the convert. Um, our meditation settles our mind a bit, we start to see progress there, uh, we start to see more mindfulness and awareness. We're really on cloud nine. And then we start to learn the lessons of impermanence and how um, that also applies to our, our mental states and, and our emotions. Um, maybe our meditation practice starts to plateau a little bit. Uh, we didn't realize it, but we've kind of started getting attached to those um, early results of meditation. And even though we keep meditating, there just doesn't seem to be any progress. Um, a little aside, that doesn't mean there isn't progress. It means that you're, you're not always going to see as obviously the results. But if you've gotten attached to that progress, then you can, uh, you know, at first you still continue to sit on the cushion, but you don't see noticeable improvements. And then for some, the practice actually starts to fall apart. And you may not be coming as often. You may not be volunteering here as much, things like that. Um, and the commitments we have cease to have the strong meaning um, that they once had. Some of us uh, actually at first will often develop an identity as a Buddhist. We'll start to get an identity attachment to being a Buddhist. And um, it isn't what we've grown up with. Um, it, it kind of seems a little bit exotic at first. But then when the rubber meets the road and we realize that the majority of what we're doing in our Buddhist practice is boring, for lack of a better word. We're sitting and we're working with our mind, and that mind is the way it's always been. There's nothing cool or exciting about it. It's the real thing. And uh, you're working with habits that you've been struggling with for all your life. Um, and, you know, you see your faults and your traumas and your habits, your hang-ups. You see them more, more clearly because you're meditating. And... Um, and this can be a difficult time. And some people lose interest and wander away during this time. It's kind of a dose of reality that they weren't quite prepared for. But that sounded all bleak. Uh, that's really just a pattern that happens for some people. Um, but that's kind of why we study these lineage masters. Because what we're showing is what's possible with our practice. We're showing 
the the results of our practice. Lama Kathy has talked about the first time she met Kimpokarta Rinpoche. She was he was in town and she was a journalist and she was interviewing interviewing him uh, for the paper. And she finished the interview and said, "That's what I want to be when I grow up." And uh, that's kind of what we're showing. We're showing what's possible through practice. Um, the second reason we're studying the lives of Karmapa, of the Karmapas, is similar, but it gets to why we're specifically studying the Karmapas and not any one of another, a number of uh, lineage masters. And that is uh, where we start to understand lineage. Uh, lineage is kind of a confusing thing at first. When we first walk in the doors, we don't really understand lineage. We don't know anything about the Karmakagyu lineage, how it differs from other lineages. Um, but the first thing is lineage really gives us the confidence that these teachings are valid. Not just because it gives us the ability to trace these teachings back to the time of the Buddha, um, although that's important, but it tells us that these teachings aren't originating with me, or Lama Kathy, or even Kempokarta Rinpoche, not from KTC or KTD. These, these teachings go back centuries and centuries and have been tried and tested and have turned many practitioners into bodhisattvas and Buddhas. Countless people have attained realization through these teachings and countless more will do so. Uh, so take heart and learn from the Karmapa's examples. With diligence in this lifetime or a future one, we will attain realization if we stick to the path. And not only will we be able to follow the examples of the Karmapas, but the Karmapas are a source of blessing for us. Um, and what does that mean? It means that if we increase our confidence in the teachings of the Karmapa, we establish a connection a link with him, and the power of his attainment is so great that we are boosted also through that connection. So we study these teachings as a way of increasing our faith in connection with the lineage in general and with the Karmapa specifically. So we like to begin our talks with uh, the four-line refuge prayer, which is a prayer of refuge and uh, commitment to awaken for the benefit of other beings. So if you don't know it, uh, just meditate along and uh, think about taking refuge in the source of these teachings and the teachings themselves and the community of guides along the path. We'll chant the prayer three times. Sangje Chidang Toki Chonamla Jang Chu Bardu Dagni Kapsuchi Dagi Jin Sogi Pe Sunamgi Drola Pinchir Sangje Jupar Sangje Jukong Toki cho namla jang chu bardu dai ni kapsuchi 
Dagi jin sagi pe sunamgi Jola penchir sanje juparsho Sanje chudan sogi chonamla Jang chu bardu daini kapsuchi Dagi jin sogi pe sunamgi Drola penchir sanje duparsho Okay, so in previous talks we've talked uh, about how the lineage started with the Indian yogis and uh, were passed down from Talopa to Naropa and then the Marpa, who was a Tibetan who actually went to India several times and uh, brought the teachings back to uh, Tibet and translated them. And then Marpa passed them down to his disciple Milarepa, who uh, was one of the most beloved and interesting figures in Tibetan history. Milarepa's primary student was Gampopa, who had received the classical teachings in the monasteries and then received the yogic teachings from Milarepa and brought the two together into the stream of teachings that we know as the Karmakagyu today. And his primary student was Dusum Kimpa, who realized the nature of the mind and before he died gave a last testament or a prediction as to where he would be reborn. And um, he wrote a letter that helped his close disciples find his reincarnation. And uh, when, his reincar when his incarnation was discovered, he was called the Karmapa, which was the second Karmapa. So Dusan Kimpa was called the first Karmapa. So then there was the third Karmapa, and now we are on to the fourth and fifth Karmapas that we're going to talk about today. So got a lot to talk about, although both of them lived relatively short lives. Um, the fourth Karmapa, but that did not stop them from having a major influ influence, as you'll see. Uh, Rolpe Dorje was the name of the fourth Karmapa. He was born in Tibet in 1340. So uh, his life was completely in the, in the 14th century. It's said that while his mother was pregnant with him, he was heard reciting Om Mani Peme Hung. And as soon as he was born, he sat up cross-legged and said Om Mani Peme Hung, as well as the Sanskrit alphabet, as marvelous fragrances filled the air. Um, when he was three, he said, I am the reincarnation of Karma Pakshi, which is the second Karmapa. I will have many disciples in this world. You will see. Now, this kind of intrigued his mother because he said he was the reincarnation of the second Karmapa. He didn't say he was the reincarnation of the third Karmapa. So she asked him about it. And he said that in reality, the two are not different. But don't tell the common people that yet. So um, exactly how my three-year-old talked to me, right? Um, Rolpe Dorje was very precocious, as you can tell, and taught himself how to read. Um, he said that he received teachings in dreams. He predicted that uh, in 1348, many disciples would come to meet him and told his mother to build a new house so that they would have room for them. And they did, and the disciples showed up. 
The uh, third Karmapa had entrusted instructions about his incarnation to his close disciples. And relying on those instructions, the disciples were able to find the child and recognize him as the fourth Karmapa. And that's when he was given the name Rolpe Dorje. When he was very young, he would visit sacred sites and travel. He would always surprise his audience by revealing details of their past lives. He would say, you were such and such, or your house was built in such a way, or you gave me this type of offering, and, uh, and so on. He would uh, bestow teachings and blessings. People would ask the fourth Karmapa to um, show his supernatural powers as proof that he was a Siddha. And he did it. Um, I think we're all kind of alike in that. I think we all kind of harbor a secret desire to see something like that. And uh, they would ask him and, and he would do it. Um, he uh, projected his image in a seated position on the wall of the temple for everyone to see. And once a yogi asked the fourth Karmapa about the miracle of the third Karmapa's face appearing in the moon just after his passing. And Rolpe Dorje replied that the union of the compassion of the master with the devotion of his most fervent disciples had permitted this exceptional manifestation. Rolpe Dorje was still a little boy at this time. So as I was talking about the blessings earlier, the strength of the Karmapa's compassion is so great that when there's fervent um, confidence and faith, when there's fervent devotion on the part of his disciples, um, there's a real meeting of, of energy and, and a lot of blessing takes place. Uh, interestingly, he said that after... Uh, the third Karmapa died, he visited a pure land before he was born as the fourth Karmapa. And um, the, uh, one of his disciples, the Shamarpa, um, had asked the third Karmapa why he was parting so soon, why he was going to die young. And uh, the Karmapa had replied that the Degenerate times had impaired his work for the good of all beings, so he was leaving for a pure realm to teach there. And so uh, when the fourth Karmapa was born, he started talking about this pure realm and what he uh, saw there. He would, get, would give many descriptions of the pure realm when people asked about it. However, he quickly caught on to the fact that his audience became too fascinated by the descriptions of the pure realm and lost sight of the fundamental objectives of the spiritual path. So he shortened his marvelous accounts and declared that any Lama who wanted to avoid becoming an old good-for-nothing teacher should dedicate his entire time and interest to the essentials. And I think that right there is a fantastic teaching. Um, the essentials of Buddhism can be kind of easy to catch on to at a high level, right? Um, but they can be very difficult to practice and realize. Sometimes we, we hear some of the teachings about mm, abandoning what is harmful and practicing what is helpful, 
and you can say, oh, well, that oh, that's kind of obvious. You know, that's kind of intuitive, right? Yeah, but we do the opposite so often, right? And um, so so the essentials are are really getting at how to tame your mind so that you can practice uh, what you know you should be doing. Um, uh, the two wings of the bird of Buddhism are compassion on the one hand and wisdom on the other. Um, we often refer to them as relative bodhicitta and absolute bodhicitta. Um, the truth of how things appear and the truth of things as they actually are. But however you categorize it, there are essentials wherever you are on your path. If you're practicing shamatha right now, there are essentials to practicing shamatha. And learning shamatha and practicing shamatha as deeply as you can um, is, is what your task is. If you're practicing tonglen, same thing. Um, learn to develop that love that is universal and undisturbed and doesn't leave anyone out and doesn't show favoritism. Um, don't get distracted and focus too much on concepts that are difficult for you. In time they may come, but if you're practicing compassion, if you're, if you're developing uh, that universal love, you're right where you need to be. If you have doubts or if some of these stories about um, babies in the womb saying, oh, mani pei me hung and things like that, if that stuff's difficult for you, there's no need to let that, that kind of thing trip you up. Um, your essentials of developing compassion and developing wisdom are exactly uh, where you should be. Um, the Karmapa then entered into an intense period of study. He had a number of visions, including those of the five Buddha families and their mandalas in his body. He could also spontaneously manifest himself in pure lands and received direct teachings from the Buddhas there. In the aspect of Avalokiteshvara, which is Chinrezi, um, the, Buddhist, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, he descended into hell in order to liberate beings from the suffering created by their harmful acts. Just as an aside, um, hell in Buddhism is also an impermanent thing. It's not something that you go to for all of eternity. Um, you've created it through your own hatred. Um, but there's a lot of suffering and you eventually will be able to leave. So there are lots of prayers. Um, the practice of chin raising, um, in the practice of chin raising, you, you visualize um, or, or pray about releasing the beings who are stuck in hell and you say an omani peme hung for them. Um, when the fourth Karmapa fell sick one day, he had a vision of the Medicine Buddha who handed him a crystal bowl full of nectar, and this uh, resulted in his immediate recovery. Through his mastery of dream yoga, he emanated himself in the pure land of Chinrezig, 
where he had a direct vision of chin-raising and achieved immediate realization of Mahamudra. Like his predecessors, the fourth Karmapa traveled extensively and visited different monasteries. He lived in a real turning point in Tibetan history. If you'll remember from past um, from the previous Karmapas, for a couple centuries, the um, all of China and, and Tibet had been ruled by the uh, descendants of Genghis Khan, the Mongol uh, invaders who who took control. And but by the beginning of the 1300s, Mongol control over Tibet had been weakening, and the heads of different Tibetan clans took advantage of the situation and seized the reins of power in Tibet. And then in 1354, Jangchub Gelsen won a decisive victory over his adversaries and definitively uh, freed them from the yoke of Mongol power. He centralized power and quickly established a period of stability that favored the economic, cultural, and religious development of Tibet for nearly a century. So when the Karmapa was 14, he returned to Tsurpu Monastery and fully dedicated himself to studying the monastic rules. He uh, took ordination as a novice monk and went to a hermitage near the monastery to uh, receive the lineage transmission. If you'll remember, the way our lineage transmissions are passed is that a karmapa, before he dies, will pass uh, the lineage transmissions on to a trusted disciple. And then that trusted disciple will pass them back to the next uh, karmapa when he is ready. And uh, so that's how they call it the golden rosary or the golden mala. It's like beads on a mala. Um, the, the transmission is not lost. It's just passed from bead to bead to bead. Um, so he received the lineage transmissions and, um, and, but before he did, the disciple wanted to make sure that this was truly the Karmapa. And so he asked the fourth Karmapa t for proof. And he said that while he did not clearly remember his incarnation as the first Karmapa, he perfectly recalled that of the second and many details related to that of the third. He related uh, his journeys during the previous life and as the second Karmapa and his meetings with the Mongols and other peoples. He mentioned having traveled to the ocean, and uh, which apparently he did when he was, I guess, uh, visiting the Mongol emperors. And so uh, he was given the lineage transmissions. When he was 18, he became a fully ordained monk. He was a brilliant scholar and always surrounded himself with books. He uh, apparently should be the envy of every modern-day high school and college student because it is said uh, that he could learn a text in his dreams simply by placing it next to him before sleeping. So that's pretty, pretty nice. It doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, he mastered many types of writing. He composed songs in which he recounted his spiritual experiences. He would share details of his life in the, as the third Karmapa in the imperial court in Beijing and he perfectly remembered the palace, and he basically dictated all of the details of the imperial palace to uh, two people, told him to write it down so that when he arrived, as he predicted he would, uh, eventually 
as the fourth Karmapa go back, uh, that they could verify that his accounting of the details of the palace were correct. And he did end up going back and fulfilled that um, prediction. So the ninth and last Mongol emperor um, was in the final years of his reign. This was known as the Yuan dynasty when the Mongol emperors uh, ruled China. And uh, this last Mongol emperor invited the Karmapa to come to China. And at first the Karmapa declined because he had begun, begun a long period of teaching uh, across Tibet. But he got a second message uh, from the emperor, so he set out on the long journey, which lasted more than two years. Um, as you'll see, and you'll see it with the fifth Karmapa too, and we've seen it with earlier, they didn't travel fast. They, they really, when they were traveling, first of all, they took a large entourage. But second of all, they stopped all along the way and gave teachings and uh, transmissions, empowerments. Um, they, would, they would heal people. They would um, resolve conflicts. They would, um, you know, if there was a, a uh, I think the fourth Karmapa once, um, there was a, a locust had wiped out a crop and he he helped uh, village with that problem. So um, during his trip, it said, they said he dedicated himself to practices, particularly Dzogchen practices. He usually ended his days with a few hours of studying and writing. He taught uh, mostly along the way on the essential precepts of compassion and nonviolence. He was a vegetarian and ensured that his entourage, particularly the monks, followed his example. As he passed through the region of Tsongkha, he was presented with a family whose young child exhibited great interest in the Dharma. The Karmapa recognized the child as an emanation of Manjushri and a future great master. The Karmapa asked that he be given the best care because he would become very important for Tibet. Later, the boy, and we'll see this in, in, during the time of the fifth Karmapa, later the boy would become Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Gelug lineage, the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. So, um, there are several stories of the Karmapa stopping epidemics and famines. Um, in one instance, he gave a teaching at the true crossroads of civilizations on the Silk Road. And it was home to a number of tribes speaking a number of languages. And he would teach and he would have translators of, of Mongol and, and Chinese and, and several other languages up there with them so that he could teach to people regardless of their, their native language. Um, then he arrived at the court of the emperor, and the emperor greeted him, and he began to give teachings to the imperial family. The country at this time was being torn apart by continuous rebellions. But the Karmapa placed um, particular emphasis on love and compassion and their most direct expression, which is nonviolence. He established a number of temples and monasteries and worked to soothe the conflicts. He freed prisoners, healed the sick, and influenced the weather to improve crops. 
The fourth Karmapa could see ahead to the terrible ordeals that were about to befall the emperor and knew that he would not be able to stop them. Um, so he decided to return to Tibet and announced his departure. The emperor and his court refused to let him leave. This is another pattern. We keep seeing this over and over. Um, and uh, But he said that it was the duty of a monk to go wherever a peaceful place can be found and to help the beings and teach the living beings this, and teach the Dharma. So he was allowed to return to Tibet. Um, he was only 24 at this time. Um, and then during the last 20 years of his life, the Karmapa traveled tirelessly in all of Tibet. Then when he knew he would die soon, he asked his disciples to gather all of his books and rare teachings and prepare them so that they would be ready for his next incarnation. He was traveling to the high plateaus where there would be no juniper wood for a funeral pyre, so he asked his disciples to gather that wood and take it with them uh, on his travel and um, because he knew he would die in the high plateaus. To prepare his followers, he reminded them of the vicissitudes of samsara and the impermanence of phenomena. He told them not to waste time in futile activities. He was 44 when he performed circumambulations around his spiritual objects so as to bless them one last time. He sat in the Vajra posture, gazed into space, and recited the prayer of Samantabhadra. He meditated until just before sunrise and entered into the Dharmadhatu, the ultimate sphere of all phenomena. There were many miracles and signs at the, at the time of his death, and many relics were found in his ashes. So then we move along to the fifth Karmapa, um, Deshin Shekpa. He lived from 1384 to 1415, so the 14th and 15th centuries. He was born into a family of yogis, and it was said that his parents and friends heard him reciting Om Mani Peme Hung and the Sanskrit alphabet while he was still in the womb. Shortly after his birth, he set up alone and announced, I bow before all the Buddhas. I am Karmapakshi, Om Mani Peme Hung. When he was two months old, he was presented to a great scholar, and the boy had great joy upon meeting this scholar, even though he was only two months old, he appeared to recognize the master. At the age of two, he showed clairvoyance and performed miracles such as leaving his footprints in a rock. At the age of four, he was presented to the second Shamarpa and received a number of initiations. When he was five, he visited a monastery constructed by the third Karmapa. It was the middle of winter, and a monk had slipped on some ice and hurt himself. And uh, he had multiple broken ribs and was visibly suffering. And Deshin Shekpa, who was five years old, was led to his side and simply placed his hands on the monk's chest. The monk rose quickly, completely recovered. When he was seven, he was ordained as a novice monk. They said Deshin Shekpa was a remarkable student. He memorized everything with difficulty. Without difficulty, sorry. Um, he 
proved to be as curious and rigorous about his studies as his previous incarnation. When he was 18, he traveled to a region that was on the brink of war, but thanks to his intervention, the worst was avoided. En route, he taught extensively, promoting the precept of nonviolence. He also created a preserve for wild animals, and I thought that was fascinating. Now, he lived during a time when the uh, Ming Dynasty started. The Ming emperors took control of China. The powerful Chinese Zhu family capitalized on the hatred of the people, particularly the peasants who had been left hungry by internal uh, squabbles and natural disasters. And the ongoing hardships led to rebellion against the Mongol Yuan dynasty. And the Zhu family capitalized on that. Um, they finally succeeded in driving the Mongols back to what I believe is modern-day Mongolia. And um, the leader of this rebellion declared himself the emperor of a new dynasty and constructed a magnificent palace. That dynasty survived through 16 successive emperors. The third emperor, who is the one known for having constructed the forbidden city in the heart of Beijing, um, learned of the Karmapa and became interested in meeting him. So in 1405, this emperor invited Deshin Shekpa to visit him. So the young Karmapa set out across the mountains with a large entourage. He took three years getting there this time and uh, because he taught and bestowed blessings all along the way. The uh, fifth Karmapa became the emperor's root lama. The emperor offered him a throne higher than his own. I, a long time ago, um, probably 18 years ago now, uh, 17, 18 years ago, I had the good fortune of visiting the Forbidden City and um, how amazing it is and how ornate it is. I had no idea this part of the history. I was not a Buddhist then. Um, but it's this huge monument to the emperors. And so when I read that he actually offered a throne higher than his own to the Karmapa, that meant something in that um, very hierarchical society. Uh, that was a, a big deal. In 1408, the fifth Karmapa bestowed a number of teachings and initiations. Uh, these transmissions lasted for nearly three weeks and were marked by numerous miraculous events, heavily vi heavenly visions, delicately perfumed rains, rainbows above the apartments of the Karmapa, a faint light emanating from the Karmapa's body, light shooting forth from a great temple and illuminating the surroundings and so forth. Many observers declared that they saw an old monk fly, pray, and bow down in the sky in the direction of the Karmapa's residence. On the last day, a multitude of cranes was seen dancing in the sky, and the clouds formed deities or sacred animals. Apparently, this made such a huge impact on the emperor um, that the emperor showered him with precious gifts and conferred upon him a title equivalent to, and this is a mouthful, 
precious religious king, great compassionate one of the West, powerful Buddha of peace. The emperor regarded him as the Tathagata and commissioned a great scroll to be made in commemoration of this teaching. Um, the scroll was called the uh, scroll representing the hundred marvelous acts. And it was all kinds of paintings of the miracles that happened, as well as transcripts of, of the teachings. One day, the emperor had a vision of the black crown floating upon, uh, above the Karmapa's head as he conducted a ritual. Now, if you'll remember, the Karmapa was given a black crown by some Dakinis, but this was not a black crown that could be perceived by everyone, but someone with great devotion and some realization could see the black crown on the Karmapa's head. So this Chinese emperor then commissioned a replica of the crown be made and um, offered it to Deshin Shekpa and requested that Deshin Shekpa wear this in a ceremony for everyone to see. And that was the beginning of the black crown ceremony, which continues until now uh, with that replica. That crown would then be worn by each incarnation of the Karmapa. The Chinese emperor, and this is fascinating to me, the Chinese emperor was opposed to the division of Buddhism into sects. He preferred to gather them all into a single school, and he wanted Karmakagyu to be that school. The emperor's minister, ministers encouraged him to use force to achieve this goal. So the Karmapa intervened, and he argued that people should have the freedom to find the types of teachings that best suited them. He said that the differences between the lineages were in reality just multiple facets of the same truth. He said, one sect cannot bring order to the lives of all people. It is not beneficial to think of merging all sects into one. Each individual sect is specifically constituted so as to accomplish a particular aspect of good activity. So please do not send your army. And the emperor finally recognized the wisdom of his uh, arguments and, and did not go through with his plans. The Karmapa had uh, a most remarkable disciple that the emperor was particular, particularly impressed with. As a sign of respect, the emperor conferred upon him a title, Kuang Ting Tai Si Tu, which means far-reaching, unshakable master, holder of great power. This is how the Tai Si Tu lineage started. This book that we're studying right now is by the 12th Tai Si Tu, Kin Ting Tai Si Tu Rinpoche. So that's actually how the uh, Tai Si Tu lineage started. When the fifth Karmapa decided to leave China, the emperor told him um, that he was very kind to come, but that he hadn't stayed long enough. Um, but he said, in former times, the emperor was more powerful than his guru. Um, but 
he said, you, my guru, are more powerful than I, so I cannot prevent you from leaving, uh, but asked him to return at some point. As he was traveling back in front of the Red Hill in Lhasa, he prophesied that this particular site would turn into a source of benefit for all beings. It would indeed become in the 17th century the site of the Potala, the residence of the Dalai Lamas. Um, Tsongkhapa, who we saw as a young child in the time of the fourth Karmapa, by this time had established the Gelug lineage. And um, since the Karmapa left the emperor, the emperor then sent for Tsongkhapa. But he said he was too busy, but he sent uh, one of his disciples who became an intimate of the emperor. One of Tsongkhapa's principal disciples was his nephew, who posthumously became known as the first Dalai Lama. Throughout his life, the fifth Karmapa made a number of predictions. One of them was about our present time. He talked about the difficulties that would arise between the death of the 16th Karmapa and the beginning of the 17th Karmapa's life. Uh, it says that the Dharma of the Karmapa will nearly be destroyed, but that it will not be. So um, I, I find that interesting. Um, for those who aren't aware, um, there was a lot of difficulty and controversy at that time, and, um, and there was a split in the Karmakagyu lineage in which um, the heart sons of the 16th Karmapa uh, split, and one of them chose his own uh, or, or appointed his own Karmapa, whereas the others appointed the uh, Karmapa that, that we recognize today. And um, just a couple months ago, right about the time we were starting this book series, the, uh, the two Karmapas met for the first time ever and uh, published a joint statement um, talking about the need to end the divisions and the split in the Karmakagyu lineage. So, uh, wonderful example they gave for us there. In 1415, at only the age of 32, the fifth Karmapa fell ill, and I find this fascinating, after taking upon himself the effects of a smallpox epidemic. Similarly to the deaths of the other Karmapas, there were many signs, miracles, and relics found at the time of his death. So, age 44, age 32, and yet they influenced um, world events. Uh, they taught tirelessly and uh, continued the lineage that is passed down to us today. Um, every time I prepare one of these talks, it really um, helps me connect to the amazing legacy that is being carried on by us in this room, by our center, um, the effort we're putting into and the, the donations and, and things like that, that we're putting into uh, rebuilding a center 
dedicated to the teachings of His Holiness Karmapa. So we here in Columbus, Ohio, are continuing that spread, uh, which was limited to um, China and Mongolia and Tibet, uh, those areas uh, back in these early centuries, um, but now are uh, really worldwide. And we're continuing that legacy here in, in Columbus, Ohio, and have been for, um, uh, what are we at now, 40, 40 plus years? Um, I believe 1977, is that about right? So, um, so uh, we continue that, and our building burned. Um, we're here now, and hopefully uh, by this time next year or, or soon after, we'll be in, uh, in our new building back again. Um, but... Um, the Karmapas in their lifetimes also faced a lot of adversity, uh, the, the second Karmapa particularly, and uh, the 17th Karmapa and the 16th Karmapa. The 16th Karmapa had to uh, flee t Tibet um, when the Chinese army invaded. The 17th Karmapa had to flee Tibet um, at age 14. Um, he escaped without them knowing it because his... Uh, actions were watched very closely um, in Tibet, and he escaped to India, where he could meet the Dalai Lama and begin to receive teachings from his uh, masters and things like that. Um, they have not at all been, because of their realization, immune to adversities in life. Um, but through their realization, they have um, they have doggedly stuck to teaching the Dharma and virtuous activity, and um, that is very inspiring for me, and really helps me have a connection to to the depth of of this teaching. So. That's all I have. I know it's a whole lot of history, uh, but maybe that jogged something in your mind. And um, you'd like to make a comment or ask a question or anything like that. And the question microphone is open for anyone about any topic. And I'll do my best. <laughs> all right. Um, thanks, Marcus. Mm -hmm. <coughs> So I guess I thought that the Karmapas were fully realized. Mm -hmm. And so, and I also thought that fully realized beings would not have to study the Dharma or anything else. So can you explain that? <clears throat> so the way I've heard it described is that um, they come into, I guess if you can think of um, what's separating us from our true Buddha nature is a veil of ignorance. And um, we are born with that, and we've developed that over habit, over lifetime after lifetime of li after lifetime. And it's my understanding that going through that process of dying and being born again, uh, they, are, they are born with, I guess you could visualize it as a very thin layer 
of that, um, that it's much easier for them to then uh, study and practice and uh, fully realize again what they had in the past life. Um, but I think it points to the fact that they voluntarily take that on um, for the sake of all beings to continue the work of the Dharma uh, when, they, when they purposefully um, die and then are reborn. They absolutely have all of the um, realization necessary to move on as it were, uh, once they die and they are choosing to return and be incarnated again uh, in samsara. Uh, but they just don't have that habit of mind um, built up like we do. And so it's very easy for them to, uh, to puncture through that and, uh, and uh, reach realization again. I may be mistaken in that. That's kind of the way I've heard it described, and that's kind of the way I think of it. So, okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, the they also. I think there are probably a lot of uh, intellectual study beyond just the the uh, realization that may not immediately come back. Um, some of the Karmapas, as we'll see later, the eighth and ninth Karmapas, uh, wrote and big texts uh, that help their disciples learn teachings like the Madhyamaka and things like that. So, um, so I would imagine they don't, they aren't born immediately with that kind of scholarship and the ability to immediately do that. However. It's also said about the 17th Karmapa, um, people marvel at how he instantly picks things up, how talented he is. He, he decided to learn calligraphy and painting, and his calligraphy and painting is, is really unbelievable. And all of his teachers just remark at how everything just comes to him really quickly. And that's what we are seeing with these previous incarnations as well. All right. Well, if there are no others, um, let's dedicate the merit of listening to the uh, teachings of the Karmapa to the benefit of all beings. May we follow in the example of the Karmapas and tirelessly work to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. We dedicate the merit of this activity in all future virtuous activities that all beings may find relief from suffering. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.